So I have really been looking forward to recording with my guest today, Leon Mann, broadcaster, filmmaker, consultant, founder of Becoms and The Football Blacklist. Honestly, if we were to list everything that you were responsible for, Leon, we'd be here all day. Now, when whenever we speak in a group setting, um, I always find the conversation to be really engaging. So I am very grateful that you've took time out of your very busy schedule to, to speak with me today. Uh, and I know the first answer to this question is probably busy, but how are things? <laughs> yeah, busy. <laughs> but um, no, good busy. Um, we're just coming off the back of Black History Month in October, which is always my busiest um, period of the year. Um, lots of really, really interesting things going on um, around that space. Um, and yeah, it's 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 good to be busy, but I'm enjoying um, not being as busy. Um, but that still is very busy. So yeah, there's lots going on. There's lots of busies in there as well. So uh, apologies, but no, I'm, I'm I'm doing well. Don't worry about it. And that's good to hear. I mean, you talk about uh, the the certain pressures that come on around Black History Month because of the amount of content that you do and the events that you run. And if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind getting started with the Football Blacklist because I know that the Football Blacklist 2021 took place, I think it was roughly two weeks ago, something like that. Um, if I'm not wrong, I remember seeing that it was at the, the National Football Museum in Manchester, which is, is one of my favourite venues. Like even when it was in Preston, now it's in Manchester. Like it's always a, a brilliant place to be. Um, and hearing the other week about your involvement in the filmmaking process leads me to believe that you'd be very hands-on with the event planning and the logistics of something like this. Um, of, of course, with it being so important to you, could you get, give a bit of context to the Football Blacklist and how the most recent event went? Yeah, sure. No, uh, we launched the Football Blacklist 2021 um, at the National Football Museum in Manchester, as you say. Um, it was a really good day. Um, normally, we just put the list in the Voice newspaper and do some press work around it and do a, um, you know, like tweet about it and post about it on Instagram. But we decided to do a series of Instagram lives from the National Football Museum because we felt it was important to get outside of London. Um, and, um, you know, it's a national list that's highly respected. Um, it, it shouldn't just sit within London. Um, so we didn't want to be um, doing that. We wanted to kind of improve our, our, our offering um, and the experience of sharing the list. Um, and the list itself is a celebration of the most influential um, or, you know, black people working in football, but not for what they do on the field of play. So we're not saying this, this is a good footballer who is from the black community. We're saying this is a black footballer who's doing incredible things off the field of play. So for example, Marcus Rashford is a, an obvious candidate who was voted onto the list. Um, Ivan Tony was doing a lot around um, the volcano um, in, um, in the Caribbean that had um, exploded. So um, that had caused massive issues within the community on the, on the island. So, um, so he, he, he did a lot of work around that. So we wanted to, 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 to shine a light on him and he was voted onto the list as well. Nikita Paris is doing a lot up in Liverpool with her academy um, and so forth. So, so that gives you a bit of an idea of, of, of who gets onto the list. And also people get onto the list who aren't footballers, who are just black people doing incredible work, be it at leadership level, 
be it within the community and grassroots level of football, um, be it within the media and the whole context of this all, which is really important to understand, um, is we're not just celebrating black people for the point of celebrating black people. This isn't about let's have separate lists for every ethnicity. And I think people misunderstand that a lot of the time. And, you know, we get a lot of tweets from people who are quite annoyed saying, well, what about the football whitelist? You know, you'd say I'm racist if I did that. And, you know, I've written an article for Sky Sports a few years ago because we're getting so many of these messages um, basically saying, look, you know, this is about the context. This is about an underrepresented group. That's why we're celebrating this group separately and shining a group of light on this group separately because we are underrepresented in the game and not celebrated widely across other awards. Um, and also there is a case to highlight this community in particular because of the underrepresentation that exists. So to give people a, a greater understanding of that, across 92 clubs that are professional in the men's game in this country at the moment, there are just six black managers, you know. And the context to that is one in three players in the top four divisions are from the black community, be the black communities here in the UK or across the world now, given the international dimension of the game. So that is why we celebrate this community separately on this occasion to say to children, to say to, to adults and people who might want to move across from different industries, we have underrepresentation, but we do have success and you are welcome and encouraged to come and work within the football industry. Yeah, that's very articulately put and you're very right in, in how you go about it and how you celebrate it. Like I, I can tell a hell of a lot of effort goes into it and almost similar to Jordan Jarrett Bryan, who I spoke to last week, who has black academics. It's it's all about giving that platform to the community to to celebrate them, uh, as you outlined. And what that brings me on to is similar to Jordan Jarrett Bryan, we met through the Premier League Conv masterclasses that are taking place, which I've not only found very educational, but so useful for the networking aspect and to connect with people such as yourself. Um, who I have shared interests with, such as, you know, basically football, storytelling uh, and filmmaking, um, which I think um, certainly given your career, um, it's very inspiring to hear from you about what you do. And it, as I said when, before we recorded, it's very inspiring to people such as myself who want to work in sports, broad, sports broadcasting. And I think... As you mentioned there, you are heavily involved in diversifying the sports media space. Um, so I'd like to ask, I was thinking about how to put an interesting spin on basically how you sort of grew into your successes. So very often on the podcast, I'll ask to hear people's stories because it's quite, of course, it's that aspect of storytelling and narrative, like of hearing a successful person's story where I can hopefully learn something from it. And I was thinking, what's an interesting way I can spin this to you? to almost articulate it differently. And I come up with, um, given your experiences um, as a young man and then in earlier in life uh, and at the start of your professional career, how did those experiences lend its hand to the career that you've built to date? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good question because, you know, I do believe, you know, everything sits within, well, everything does sit within context. And, and often when people go on a journey in their careers or their lives, it's based on what's kind of happened before and informs their kind of decisions on what's important, what they want to do to address important issues, 
um, and, and how they kind of move forward and how they use their position um, as well. And those positions kind of change. Certainly mine has um, along the last kind of 20 years. But, you know, I grew up in, you know, North London. I don't live too far away from where I grew up now, actually, in North northeast London. So that was a very diverse area. Um, and in terms of where I went to school, it sat geographically in a really interesting part of the world because it was um, in, a, in a beautiful part of the world called Highgate. Um, and Highgate is, for those who, who are listening who don't know London, um, it's, it's, it's pretty much where all the footballers would live. They'd live in Highgate and Hampstead. So it's a like, leafy kind of place. When you think of London traditionally, you don't think of Highgate and Hampstead because that's the area that the rich, bougie kind of people live in. Um, and when you think of London, you might think of more of the inner city areas. Um, so I was you know, was brought up in an area called Haringey Green Lanes, which is an inner city area. Um, you know, I would describe it in terms of the area that I grew up in um, as a very working class area. Um, now, if you go there, there's Foxtons and all these kind of places along the high street. And it's been become very much gentrified um, because there are some nice properties there that were previously like flats and um, say lower housing, income, low income housing. I wouldn't even describe it as that really, but just just what I would describe as normal houses. Um, and up the road, you've got Crouch End, which is a very kind of aspirational kind of area. And then you've got Highgate and Hampstead, not too far away um, in, in, in North London. Um, and if you go the, in the opposite direction to Highgate and Hampstead from where I live, you've got South Tottenham and Tottenham and Hackney and lots of other different areas um, that really are very working class um, and very diverse in terms of the communities that have settled there. Um, so I geographically grew up in, in the middle of these areas. Um, so if I turn left, I'd be going into some leafy kind of middle class area. If I turn right, I'd be going very much into a working class area, more so than the area that I lived in. And because of I was living on this, you know, this crossroads almost, I just think it just did lots of different things for me. Um, it showed me what people have and what people don't have. It showed me that happiness exists in both spaces. So it doesn't mean that you've got a nice big house and nice big garden and lots of rooms in your house and nice car that means you're happy it doesn't it doesn't mean that if you don't have a lot of things let's say or a lot of rooms in your house or a big house that that makes you happy because plenty of people in those working class areas were very very happy and we hear about the difficult stories and the difficulties and um a lot in in the media and and a lot of the time rightly so but actually there's like communities that are really happy that support each other that there's a lot of joy and happiness within um and i don't think we tell those stories well enough mm. um personally i think we kind of almost like look down on these communities and it's like well what are you looking down on you're looking down on a group of happy people a lot of the time but you're not telling those stories unless it's in the royal family where it's kind of like a bit of a joke so um it's 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 it, i i felt blessed you know looking back that i grew up in that situation because it also kind of showed me the, the aspirations there are within middle class households and families where you will go to university, you will get a good job, you will do all these things. It's not a we would like you to or you should try. It's kind of almost an expectation. Um, and I believe when you surround yourself with people who have real high aspirations in whatever they're doing, that only kind of helps you. It certainly helped me in terms of, look, my, 
my both my parents are teachers I don't want to kind of suggest I've got some story where I was the first person in the family to go to university or anything like that um, I was probably you know the second generation of people who went to university certainly there wasn't a generation before that they were um, you know working on the railways my grandparents and carpenters and nurses and you know dinner ladies you know that's where my parents have come from that's the households they've come from um, and they have become teachers and said right we want to make sure you have um, the ability to have these opportunities and so because of these things I've just kind of found myself in spaces a lot of the time and 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 thought you know I wish it was a bit more like the communities that I grew up in I wish I wish there were more people who were bringing a different opinion and a difference and you know the, the sharpest people I went to school with weren't the people who had the most you know that that certainly wasn't wasn't the situation you know sometimes there were people who I went to school with who were incredibly sharp but you know weren't going to be supported for a university system that was you know cost so much money um, and also just had different pressures in their life they had to help support the, the household you know they had to go out and work so going to university etc just wasn't an option at that time and I'm glad that things have kind of changed a bit in that time um, because I'm you know I'm sort of 42 this month so I, I've got a different kind of experience to someone who might be 30 or, or, or 20 um, but those experiences helped to shape what was important to me and diversity was top of the list um, I couldn't work out I was going into all these places like the BBC and other places I was just like it just doesn't feel right it's not representative we're missing those perspectives those voices um, we need to change this in some kind of way mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what helped me and you know, in terms of that as a, an ideolo ideology, that existed, that exists in me for that reason. Um, but in terms of what kind of gave me a kick up the arse to actually do it was actually becoming quite unwell off the back of university. I had um, a very minor stroke, but I, half my face was paralysed um, because I'd come out of university and I'm not sure what it was. I was kind of stressed and stuff just about life generally. And I think a lot of people coming out of university are because you've done a university right now it's time to get a job what are you going to do kind of thing and and I was kind of like you know struck down with you know feeling um a little bit lost um and I think I'd kind of grown up with like a bit of a fear of failure like I wouldn't try 100% because if I tried as hard as I can as I could and I could only achieve a B that means I could only achieve a B so I would try a little bit and maybe get a B or a C and that would be good enough because I hadn't tried hard enough because I could tell everyone I would have got an A if I'd tried my hardest. All this kind of nonsense, but, you know, they're kind of rooted in kind of deep kind of issues about how you see yourself, about how you kind of grow up and feel your self-worth. Um, and I think that's a kind of a big issue that, that many of us deal with, particularly men, I think, in terms of where is our self-worth and where is our value and questioning ourselves a lot of the time. So, um, so I, I had this minor stroke. Um, the doctor said you might not recover from it, which was weird. I was like, well, what do you mean not recover? That's not an option. Mm -hmm. um, and I stopped drinking and at university. I used to drink a hell of a lot. I think a lot of people do because, you know, it's just a university culture. Uh -huh. um, I stopped eating the, the chips and the burgers and fried chicken and all that kind of stuff. And I went to the gym pretty much every day and I lived a real healthy, healthy way. 
Um, and within three months, I got myself, you know, better, like my face has started to move again, etc. But what that experience taught me um, was that anything can happen in life like that. Mm-hmm. And so you really do have to grab things and, you know, take opportunities and have ideas and not just let them sit on a pad um, and just stay on this pad and be, a, oh, well, I could have done this you have to go for stuff um and that's what made me kind of think you know time is not infinite for me i don't know what's going to happen in my life mm-hmm. so i have to do these things now as best as i can and what's the worst that can happen you know i fail at it well okay that's fine i'll do something else and try and do it as well as i can yeah what what i love about that is that it's almost it's a journey that's led you to that perspective there's been a period of growth that has certainly led you there which i think a lot of people can relate to who maybe be at you know the start of that journey almost and two things caught my attention in what you were talking about there um firstly uh in where you the way you grew up as you you said is almost at the crossroad between a working class and a middle class community um and then that um intention to divert like you're going into these spaces and you're seeing there's a lack of representation in, in, in the spaces that you're going into um and relating to your issue with self-worth almost now one of the things that even starting this podcast something that I battled with was something that I disco- researched and discovered to be imposter syndrome now I listened to podcasts when I was very young. Like, I mean, they still are in their infancy and they're, they're going to grow. Like, they're, they're going to be bigger than television, I think, in my opinion. And that's a conversation for another podcast. But I also, I was always like, um, I was always hesitant to host my own podcast, if you know what I mean. Because I think I've got certain reserv- reservations about uh, the way I present myself, the way I speak, how I articulate what I want to say. Um, am I clear enough in how I enunciate things? Um and I think it, it just come to the point, as, as you said there, at some point you just got to bite the bullet and say, right, you know, you've got a finite amount of time and you just got to go out there and, and do what you can. The fact that you grew up at this sort of almost sort of cultural cro- crossroads where there was, you know, different aspects, um, so, so different classes, uh, you know, at each end, did that help you sort of combat that imposter syndrome, if you will, of being able to go into a room with your intention straight and know what you wanted to achieve when you went into a certain workplace to say. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. My, my, um, uh, my community where I've grown up, the people that I still talk to, I like to do a lot of things, talking to young people, but also listening to young people, you know, all of that kind of feeds, you know, um, feeds something in me which kind of confirms to me like I am relevant because I am kind of immersed within people across society mm-hmm. who are telling me <clears throat> different things in different ways or the same things in different ways that confirm to me that when I am in the room with people who are there to make decisions or I am part of a decision-making process, that, that I'm coming at this from a perspective that is relevant and I know that because of the contact that I have with my community. And in terms of, you know, the the kind of imposter syndrome, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've had that a lot in my life. Um, I don't feel it as much now, um, I must admit. Um, but I think that's because I've been on, you know, a journey around it. 
Um, I don't always think, geez, you know, I'm so, so sharp. I, I deserve to be in this position right now. Um, I kind of think, well, I'm in this position, so I've got to use it. And there might be someone who's much better placed to be in this position right now. But guess what? They're not in it right now. So I'm the guy who's in the seat and I've got to do what I've got to do right now. Um, and um, and I think I think it's healthy to have a bit of questioning yourself. I think it's just just how far you go with that, because I think I do see a lot of bravado, a lot of people kind of wanting to be the loudest in the room. Um, and for me, I think it kind of that's patching up a bit of insecurity. You know, it's kind of like puffing the chest out to kind of say, look, I'm ready. And it's almost people are a bit too hyped up, you know, and they're a bit too comfort. They're a bit too um, confident in one particular perspective or idea that actually, you know, I, I do think to myself, well, what, what if somebody says something completely different to what you're saying? and We go in a completely different direction. Are you able to take that? as a individual around this table are you going to take it deeply personal that it's something personal about you when actually it's not you know often well, it should never really be personal about anyone if you're coming to the best decision um but when i do see people like that i do think you know there's you know, potentially some insecurity issues there because they're so quick to get their view in there and have everyone kind of agree with it but actually they're not open to the fact that you know, maybe their position isn't the best position. And when I walk into a room, I, can't, I feel very confident because I've done my research and stuff, but I'm not scared to be flexible. I'm not scared to go in a different direction if I can hear and understand what somebody else is saying. Um, and therefore, as a result of that, you know, um, I, I, I kind of feel that the whole imposter syndrome, um, you know, while I think that will always be there in some aspects for people, because, you know, how do you get to where you get to? You know, sometimes I'm in rooms and I'm like, how the hell have I ended up here? This is like, this, this is like real adult stuff, <laughs> you know, um, but I'm there and people will always tell you what you've done. I, I don't read my CV before I go into a meeting or anything like that. I, I, I kind of have a feel of what I've, I've achieved and what I'm proud of. And people always tell you what you you've done normally as part of a process there. And, um, you know, sometimes you do have a sense of having to tell people what you've done. And, you know, it, it can take a long time, depending on, you know, who you're speaking to in terms of breaking things down. But, you know, in terms of that imposter syndrome, I, I, I kind of think it's in some ways, and this is a very different take on it, you know, not necessarily that unhealthy because like, i was going to say it's like a it's like a healthy consciousness almost to to realize yeah. that you are fallible yeah yeah and, and and i think it's just what parts of that you kind of accept and what parts you have to reject like for example um you know i i wouldn't turn up and try and talk in a different way to what i would say i normally talk in but i would talk in a professional way and that might mean that I lose some of the words that might be my vocabulary with my mates on a Saturday night down the pub. Um, and I kind of, you know, have other words that help to communicate clearly in that particular environment. Um, but I won't change my perspective. I won't change who I am because that's, that's what brings value to that space. So um, I think it's just having that kind of consciousness to, to check yourself um and also to kind of not get too far ahead of yourself in terms of you know what what is the finished product i don't know i don't know if i'll ever be it 
Um, in fact, I know I'll never be it because I'm constantly wanting to learn and develop. I can't know everything about every bit of information and I can't know what it's like to feel like to be somebody else. So I have to listen and I have to learn and I have to make decisions in terms of how I interact and communicate and the things that I back and the things that I push back on. And then I have to have that flexibility. That's all within just having, I guess, a self-awareness is probably the better way of putting it. Having yeah. a real kind of like firm grasp of self-awareness. Yeah, it, it's a very valuable trait, I would say. If we take it down the, the masculinity route, it's not, as if, it's not as if this doesn't apply to women either, but like it takes a proper man to recognise that he can't be wrong or that he doesn't know everything about the subject. So I think that, that's a very sort of important point that you touched upon there. Oh. Um, big, big, big time, big time, and and look, you know, and also we're all going to get things wrong. Yeah, you know how you respond to getting things wrong. It's how you respond to difficult situations that really does help you grow and learn and move forward. You know, I think um, we get so stuck in our ways sometimes. We get so aggressively kind of like confident about things that we take it so deeply personal when someone goes, mm, "I'm not sure." I remember I used to, as a young man, I'd be like, what, what, oh, what do you mean? You, 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 hang on, this isn't part of the plan. Yeah. Um, and then when you take a bit of a step back and, and breathe and allow yourself to listen, you may still disagree with this person, but they'll make some very valid points along that journey, I'm sure. It certainly was my experience. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got, uh, you've got to be able to take a step back and, and have some self-awareness, I think. Okay, definitely. And uh, this ties in nicely to the discussion that I wanted to have around the concept of ideas, because as I mentioned again, before we press record on this, that I watched another podcast that you appeared in, uh, where you talked about uh, and described yourself as a very idea-based person. Um, to me, as I mentioned as well, like you seem a very action-orientated person in order to see the ideas that you have come to fruition. Um, to me, like put it this way, um, you need to almost strike the right balance between thinking and doing. And the way I describe that is thinking being like the conception of an idea or a business plan, uh, doing being, you know, movement towards a desired goal, like forward motion, um, almost a sort of, like you would describe with a slightly different take on it, that sort of impulsive, sort of confidence to to move forward almost um what is the balance what uh, what balance between thinking and doing has worked for you over the course of your life and has that changed as you've got older yeah no I mean I, I'd say um this is something I'm working on myself a lot because I don't know let's, let's use a football analogy I, I, the way I play football and someone told me this before the way you play football is often the way you are in business sometimes. So you know that kind of graft of that right wing back, up and down, bang, 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 all that hard-working midfielder. Normally, they kind of like are in a meeting, they've got their pen of scribbling things down, they've got their action points, right, I'm going to go and do this. And then you've got other people who are slightly more aloof and kind of looking around, and that might be a more of a Matt Letizier-type, David Ginola kind of does spark some kind of magic. Yeah. Well, I guess if I was to describe myself, I'd be like a number eight who wants to play that like this pass that nobody else can play and gets really excited about it because I can see it before it's coming and I can see my striker and I can see the ball coming to me and I know what I'm going to do and it's going to be unexpected, but it's going to be creative and I get really excited about it. And then the ball comes and then you've got to do it, right? 
and sometimes it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't quite work. It yeah. might go off the side of your foot and it's a throw in and everyone's like, what the hell was that? That was awful. But so it takes confidence to, 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 to try and do these things. And, and I, I think for me, you know, I, I get really excited about looking at, you know, and again, it's like a football pitch. You're looking at what are the possibilities here and you're looking at the things that aren't being done because there's, there's no point, like the things that are being done really, really well like for me i'm like I don't, I don't need to do it someone's doing that someone's doing mcdonald's right they're doing hamburgers and fries and they're doing it really really well so i don't need to jump into that space mm. um, however there are kind of like there's an opportunity to make a film about this thing that no one's really talking about and i don't understand it and i need to go away and see maybe someone has done it and it's just not worked so i need to know why it hasn't all of that kind of exploration um is 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 kind of the the doing the start of the doing um and then it's kind of about having achievable goals i i i always say this because this is something that's only really dawned on me sort of later on in life where i've kind of like looked at so many incredible people that i really respect that are talented that have got resource um but they haven't managed to kind of like execute the visions that they've told me about mm. um and I often think, looking at where it hasn't happened, the goals and aims have just been way too big in a, in, in a short timeline. So it's been too ambitious. Um, and I would never discourage anyone from being ambitious. But I would say what's worked for me is, is to say, OK, I want to start something called the Football Blacklist. So I'm going to write a list and I'm going to put it in the Voice newspaper. That's, that's the beginning. And then, right, there's an opportunity to bring these people together. Okay, that's stage two. Right, that's gone well. Everyone liked that. So now I have an opportunity to go back and have some conversations. Can we make this twice as big? Because we only have 40 people here. Can we have 80 people? Okay, great. Next year, year two, write the same list. In well, whatever the process is around it, 80 people get together. They're seeing growth. Now they're getting excited about it that's the step to go a little bit further. So you're kind of, it's incremental in terms of how your actions are and also being honest about the resource you've got. Like, you know, if you're a one-man band, which is pretty much what I've been up until the last six or seven years, there's only so much I can do by myself and I'll maximise that. I'll be silly. This is where I need to work on myself. I'll get up early, go and do my job um, at the time as a kind of a BBC employee, um, as a as a producer and then as a reporter but then i'll come home at five six and then i'll jump on the computer again um and i'll start working through to one in the morning and that's actually where i kind of get the value because other people aren't doing that so other people are sitting down watching box sets i remember there's a big thing box sets and sorry to younger people they'd be saying what's a box set but um back in the back in the day like where i made my progress to get me to where i am today where the graft was was during a time when everyone was watching box sets. So it was through from 2005 through to about 2015. And I'd be speaking to mates and they'd be, oh, brilliant box set I watched the other day, da 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 And I'm like, so you watched like DV after DVD and DVD? It's like, wow, wow, that's crazy. How do you find the time? Oh, no, 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 I'm obsessed when I get watching those. And it's, and it's occurred to me like for the last few years that I didn't know any of those box sets that they were talking about because my, my experience of box set time was sitting at the computer, writing out documents, writing out ideas and concepts, emailing people back and forth outside of my working hours at that time, because 
now I'm very lucky. I've got my own companies and stuff, so I kind of manage my own time. And 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 that was and that was what made the difference. And I and I enjoyed it. So I didn't feel like work. It felt like this is an enjoyable hobby that I've got. And suddenly now it's kind of turned into something that's sponsored by the Premier League and brings loads of people together and is kind of like internationally known and had, you know, various sports people from outside of the UK get in touch and say, you know, that blacklist, could we do that in the States? Could we do this in Asia? Could we do this in Africa? It's nuts. But it all starts with an idea, a commitment to the idea, graft around the idea, and then kind of understanding those 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 small wins um, and the energy you get from those small wins and not just thinking, right, we're going to have 10,000 people and Jay-Z is going to come and this and this, and we're going to raise, always this chuff, we're going to raise a million pounds. Raise a million pounds, are you nuts? But all them things fell aside. They, they wasted people's time. They wasted my time as well, um, investing in them um, because, you know, they, they were they were overly ambitious yeah. um, lacked the commitment. Yeah, it, it's almost taking that consideration of time um, take, taking that into consideration and because it is a, a real factor that impacts decision making at time. Oh. It's, in, it's interesting that, you'd, um, that you use that football analogy at first because honest, honestly when I think about myself and what, what I want to achieve throughout the course of my career it's almost as if I think I'm Paul Scholes but I'm really Roy right. You know, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I'll try and play that ambitious ball, but all, all I'm really good for is nailing people at 50-50s. <laughs> two, two things, again, mm. I, I wanted to sort of to raise, it almost relating to two different stages of your career, almost, because I've got a good mate who's a filmmaker who um, I, I was on the phone to the other night and mentioned that I had you coming onto the podcast, especially after we did the, the class on, on filmmaking. Um, and he said essentially what he'd be interested interested to find out as an ear listen to the podcast is how do you go about and I think this is certainly applicable to me as well wanting to get into sports broadcasting how do you go about making you know your passion project that you do as a hobby into a career so that is like specific to that making a name for yourself and getting into the door and doing it and earning a living out of it yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, I think I've been lucky in the sense of, um, you know, the the access I've had to people, you know, has, you know, been intrinsically linked to me being someone who brings different diversity. So, you know, um, the, the black community, there's many, many sports people within it. Um, I'm a visible person within the black community and have made most of my phone, my films. Um, certainly the longer form films around the black community so um, so that's made some of these ideas you know like I say some of these kind of you know passes possibility a a real possibility Um, because um, I've been able to not only have an idea but have access to be able to do it and many people have great ideas but they'll be calling you know a, a press office at a place that they've got no relationships to pitch something to somebody who's got no interest in really what you're pitching them. Mm. And actually the message doesn't even get to the person you want to make the documentary about. You know, if you were calling a football club and said, look, I've got a brilliant idea about your midfielder, 
you know, they've got this brilliant story where they're from Congo and they've traveled over and it's a real positive story. We'd love to do it. You know, you could be talking to a, a guy, you know, who's, you know, from, from Devon, who's just got no connection with what you're talking about um, and actually just wants that, that footballer to just be left alone to just get on with playing football. Um, so, th- so your idea, your thing doesn't get to that person, so you don't get to even even try and make this film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very fortunate that I had direct contacts. I had good contacts of agents. I, um, again, I guess what I represented in terms of being a younger black guy in the sports media, you know, I think that also brought about a kind of relationship and a warmth from the people who were either going to be interviewed by me or, you know, they knew I was coming from a different perspective. And I think that meant something to some of them, not all of them, not all of them, but some of them. Um, and I think that helped me to kind of deliver in those spaces. And, and in terms of like whoever was commissioning me, you know, largely all they cared about was, can you get a big name um, to be part of this product? And can you deliver on all these brilliant ideas that you're talking about? Um, and that's when the pressure comes because, you know, you're either going to deliver or you're not going to deliver. Mm. You know, you're either going to get that person you said you were going to get in that place or not. And sometimes you get the person, but not in the place and you don't get as much time with them. So you've got to use the time in a different way. But, you know, I got a reputation within the BBC, I think it's fair to say, for someone who delivers. So if I come with an idea, you know, then the bosses start looking at that in a slightly different way because they're like, well, actually, we know what he's done previously. So this is highly ambitious. but if he's done everything else, <laughs> then he surely has got a good chance of doing this. So, so, so I, I got backing, and you know it's really hard to get backing, particularly on like documentaries. It is really, really hard um, if you're looking for a BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three kind of platform, ITV or Sky or whoever it might be. Um, but, but I was able to get that, and you know, once you do something, it's like anything, it's like, you know, if you've got a, an academy footballer, once they play in the first team three or four times, you know, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time is not so much of a big deal. They're trusted, right? Um, and similarly in kind of the sports media, once you've done a bit, when, like, you know, when I was on camera, I could tell there's a massive nervousness about the first few pieces I was doing. Like, is this the right guy to be on camera? Is he going to be rubbish? We think he's going to be good. We've seen stuff he's done. It looks all right. But, you know, all of that. But after that, it's like, yeah, well, he's just going to go off and do his thing. Yeah. And um, and I think that applies to filmmaking. Well, in fact, I, I, I know that applies to filmmaking. It's about confidence. Um, and then, lo and behold, people will come and start knocking on your door and ask you to do things. So ITV, um, Jermaine Defoe and Andy Cole Life Stories, you know, I was approached to do that because ITV bosses were happy um, with the work that I'd done or seen the work that I've done for other platforms and also their platform um, and suggested me as part of those processes. I mean, I guess less so with Jermaine Defoe because um, Jermaine was somebody who I had struck up a good relationship with and had kind of like suggested this would be a good documentary to do. And then ITV went, yes, it'd be good if you could get access. And then we went to St. Lucia together for like um, best part of a week and had loads of filming there. And then we sort of went to East London and did it was like a five hour interview. I mean, literally both of us were on the floor at the end. Um, we were so tired emotionally, physically. Um, 
but you know Jermaine was like this is like been like therapy and I was like yeah it feels like therapy for me as well just really kind of a good you know a good energy and stuff but but yeah hopefully that within that long answer (laughs) answers the question Um, definitely and almost coming back to what what you said earlier about the the pressure that that comes along with developing a reputation as someone that delivers um this is more so for 10 15 years down the line where i've hit some of my goals and i want to revisit the podcast for some insight into that stage of my career when i'm further down the line of being too ambitious as you put it um how as you're in these positions where you've got your own businesses and you're dealing with high high, you know high profile clients uh, uh, and and talent like I've I've seen you on a set with Lionel Messi I've seen you interviewing Virgil van Dijk you know you've done a a documentary on Usain Bolt like does in a sense because you've got more responsibility and more pressure on your shoulders has there been any impact or changes to your decision making or time management which of course are two really important factors at any stage of your career really but how would you say um as you've developed more responsibilities that's impacted you sort of personally if you don't mind as your careers progress yeah no i mean look you know i i time management is the big thing i'm kind of thinking about and working on at the moment because you know it's not just me i've got a wife and two kids and you know, time goes quickly and, you know, am I spending enough time with my my family? That's kind of one of the big kind of questions because, you know, when I look back on my life, when I retire one day, hopefully, um, I, 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 you know, what, what will I say? I've done all these amazing things, but, you know, I might not know my children <laughs> as well. You know, that, that wouldn't be a successful life for me. That's not what I want. If I was to write down now what I want, I want a healthy family life, I want to be successful and I want to open doors for people who might not have doors opened for them um, because of, you know, where they're from. And I don't think that's fair. Um, So um, in terms of my time management, you know, I also I'm I'm working on that at at the moment. And this week's a significant week for that because BCOM's Black Collective Media and Sport has been ran purely on volunteers. I think it'd be fair to say mostly me doing most of the kind of heavy lifting and meetings etc um, and this week we've got our you know full-time staff member our very first and only full-time staff member starting for BCOMs so actually that means a lot of that kind of heavy lifting is passed on to somebody else and also it kind of allows me to kind of think in a more strategic way and have a vision as opposed to getting too involved in the detail and, and when you get the detail and the vision all mixed up then actually it's really hard to move things forward. That's the point of a board, a board of directors. It's meant yeah. to look at the vision. It's not meant to look at, you know, how many kids are turning up at this time, at this place. And that's what I've kind of been involved in alongside of a, of a, um, of a strategic wider kind of things around funding, et cetera. So, so that gives me more headspace. It gives me more time. It gives me, yeah, and, and, and that's massively kind of necessary. Um, and in terms of kind of like working with, you know, those high profile people. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you, you do have to take a lot of care. You, you, you get paid more for the responsibility more so than the, the hours, I would say. Yeah. You know, if, if something goes wrong, you know, it would be wrong. And many managers do this and many kind of senior people do this. They go and find out the person who 
didn't book the train ticket on time or something like that for the for the talent to be in the seat that they wanted as opposed to well no I meant to manage that process I meant to make sure the person who's working under the umbrella of the company has booked that on time that's my responsibility so it's my responsibility to get somebody else and I see people who are bad bosses bad leaders calling out younger people on a lot less money within their business saying well actually yeah we've got this person they haven't done it so it's not my fault but it's them so I'm going to go and give them a hard time it's like it's nonsense like you know are you going to say this person has booked your train on time and you've got the right seat when it goes well and are you going to you know say their name to this very important client and 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 person that doesn't happen you normally go oh thank you no problem of course we're going to do it for you you take on you take on the praise so if you take on the praise you take on when it goes wrong that's important and you praise people internally within your team when it goes well mm -hmm. when it goes wrong you review your own actions why didn't i support that person enough what maybe that was the wrong person i put in charge to make that decision to book the train maybe i should have booked the train if it was really that important i should have been the person who kind of took it out of somebody's hands so i think that's it, it's, it's it's more the kind of accountability and that's where the pressure comes from you know, when you know how much money it's worth, like if you book somebody in and their time is worth hundreds of thousands of pounds, and I won't mention, you know, any particular person whose whose time might be worth that, but you could probably work it out from looking at some of the pictures of the people that I've worked with. So you 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 know, if you mess up that hour, you have lost a business, a lot of money. Mm. So you take on that pressure and, you know, that means that I don't sleep that well at night sometimes because there's always some little detail. Something could go wrong that's completely out of your hands. So I would say that's the thing that 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 really significantly shifts and changes and changes in your life. The level of pressure that you have to deal with and the layers, understanding the layers of things that you need to manage to make sure they go right. Yeah. Um, that's that's the thing that changes. Seems like it's like a as an umbrella term, not to ignore the specifics of everything that you just said. At a, at a base level, it almost seems like people skills. Like um, yeah. when when you've got a certain amount of pressure, delegate uh, with people that you yeah. trust and make sure that you are accountable when you're in such a prominent position. Big time, big time, I, I, and 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 it sounds a lot easier when, than what it is. You know, it sounds a lot easier than what it is because. Um, you know, I think I've always found it hard to trust. Um, I don't know if that's based on where I've grown up and the things I've seen in my life and, you know, the, the experiences that we've had. You know, I'm sort of a person who needs to work on my, is working on myself in terms of, you know, I'd prefer to have, there's a hundred things I need doing. I prefer to work through the hundred than bring in 40 people to work on it because I know I'm going to do them all <laughs> and I know I'm in control of the timeline and I know I'm not going to have a situation where I get something at the last minute that's substandard that drops into my lap and I'm like I can't use this because it's not done good enough to my standards yeah I'll go and do it myself and that's not a way of working that is not how you can you have to trust people you have to guide people you have to know people you have to know the person who is going to be doing great work but in different hours to you and things like that so I've noticed that with young people, I'll be getting emails from them at three o'clock in the morning. And to me, like, I'd be like, oh my God, what is it? And, and it's a brilliant piece of work because just the way that they are working at that time in their life, they do their best work from 10 o'clock through to two in the morning. 
Now, me, I'm like thinking, mm -mm, this isn't the way that we work, but I have to show flexibility for that particular person for them to get it done in that way if I can make that work for me to get the best from them. So, um, so no, I, th I think it's about yeah, people skills, flexibility and understanding the world you live in. You know, the world we live in is not the world that I grew up in. It's mm -hmm. very different. So if I didn't change and keep myself as relevant as possible, I'd still be working to things that would involve, you know, linear TVs and big satellites and top of houses and, you know, an aerial having to direct it in different directions. Like, you know, the world's moved on. Like, so I have to move on. Um, and and we all do to, to remain relevant. So yeah. that's about understanding people and the environments that we live in. Yeah. Most definitely. I think that's a, a really important message to get across about the, the changing times that we live in, especially for those involved in the, uh, the sports broadcasting space. Um, I have absolutely loved this conversation, mate. Like I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I found it very insightful. And to sign off, as I know that you're a big, big Spurs fan and ugh, you've only gone and got uh, Everton Football Club up next in the Premier League, I felt like we, we felt like we'd sign off in a bit of a football conversation now. First game under Antonio Conte last night uh, in the Conference League against Vitesse. Spurs won 3-2. Uh, I saw the highlights. They stormed through it, it seemed, the opening half an hour, um, and then just got caught up in a, in a bit of a comeback. Um, but yeah. it's been a bit... It seems to be. Spurs, especially under Levy, it seems to be a bit of a, a turbulent football club. Uh, still in search, like Everton, very much for a bit of silverware. Uh, how would you assess spares at the moment? Yeah, do you know what? I mean, we 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 we're just we're, we're desperate for a silverware because we've got everything else. You know, we've got everything else. We've got a brilliant ground. We've got a fantastic training ground. Um, you know, and 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 we've got lots of exceptional players. But what we haven't done is we haven't found a way of playing. And I'm not sure Conte is the answer to that. We really? will have. We will have a way of playing, of course. It will be very clear, but it won't be the Tottenham way. And the biggest problem we've had has been Nuno hasn't played the Tottenham way. Um, Jose certainly didn't play the Tottenham way. Um, and Poch kind of found a new Tottenham way, you know, this kind of pressing football, but it was creative. It was, it was high energy. You know, it was, it was entertaining to watch. Um, and of course, it went the wrong way when we didn't invest in the team when we needed to, and that's the biggest mistake we've made. Um, with Conte, of course, I'm hopeful. Of course, I'm optimistic. Um, but if, if you were a business and you said, as a business, we are doing this wrong. So the way we have our factory set up, we, we aren't doing things that our customers are happy with because of the way we're making this chocolate. You know, they liked it when we had milk chocolate and we keep giving them dark chocolate and they're loyal customers and they keep coming back. So they're eating the chocolate, but they keep telling us it's not quite right. So we have to get a new manager mm. to manage this, this business. And I want the milk chocolate back. <laughs> oh, I, and I don't know, like, it might be that we get record results and we get trophies and all sorts. Um, but I'm not finding many Chelsea fans that are telling me, oh, the football was sensational. And look, if I was to get that from Chelsea fans, I would feel completely differently. And don't get me wrong, I don't feel like negatively about Conte. But I just think, you know, if you're going to say publicly the DNA of the football um, has to be the Tottenham way, you know, then I need to see that. And Conte hasn't got necessarily the background in delivering this free-flowing football. 
from what I understand, and I'm happy to be challenged and I'm happy to be proven wrong because that's the question I'm asking. I'm not asking, is he going to win us stuff? I'm asking, is he going to play the football? Because if he plays the football and wins us stuff, then I'm so, so happy. Yeah. Well, I think I've got one of the two. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that is very much the the question because I almost, I almost see um, similar relations to Everton in a sense. Obviously, I think the last time you won a trophy was, a, you know, I think it was like oh, 2008, 2008 yeah. the, the, the League Cup. And, and for us, it's even further back, 95, the FA Cup. Like, I've never seen Everton win a trophy. Um, to be one of the most successful teams in English football, and I've not seen us win a trophy, I think it's an absolute travesty. And it's interesting that you raise that point because there is, amongst Evertonians, there is very much like the Everton way, in a sense. Uh, and even if we aren't winning trophies, that's like the minimum expectation from the 11 players on the pitch. But yeah. at the same time, I am very much of the approach of we have been starved of success for so long. I don't care if we turn into Atletico Madrid and we win 1 0 every week and, yeah. and it, it leads us to a league title. So I get it. I, I, I totally get it. It's interesting that you've got that perspective on Conte because he was, he was, when he went to Chelsea, I would argue he's one of the most revolutionary managers in Premier League history, the way he implemented the back three and the wing backs. And that was exciting yeah. to watch. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I look. This is the thing. I, I'm I'm asking Chelsea fans. Tell me about the football. Yeah, you know, and they're not telling me much about the football. They're telling me about the trophy, and uh, and a lot of Tottenham fans are saying, "Oh, look, forget, forget. Look, we're going to win. We just need to win." Like your perspective, and I completely understand it. And trust me, like you know, if we're lifting the FA Cup, if we're getting into the Champions League, if all those things are happening, I'm going to feel really good about what's going on in that pitch. And it might not be. The free flowing passing and etc. But if if Undumbele is playing in that system, it's going to be hard not to play some kind of attractive football because that's the only football that guy can play. He ain't going to be just up and down playing it into the wings, whipping it into the box, and Kane nodding it in. If it, if it becomes that, or if it becomes what Jose was playing, which was just counter attack football, lobbing it up over the top into into Kane and who would knock it into Son. You know, I was enjoying when the, the results, but in terms of the actual football, unless you're going to win every game, you know, it, it was really difficult. Um, but again, like I, I, will, I will hold my hands up and say, I don't know enough about how Conte's teams play football, which probably is an indication of the last few years of my life, not being kind of completely dedicated to sports journalism which which it would have been previously before I'd watch every single game religiously. Now I'll watch Tottenham games and I'll watch the other kind of two or three big games across the weekend and I'll watch Match of the Day, but it's hard to get a feel. I, I think a lot, of, a lot of people, when they talk about teams that aren't their own, you know, they know 20%. Yeah. Of, you know, I couldn't tell you anything about Everton apart from I really like the idea, idea of Decore. I love Richarlison for a long time, but I haven't seen him do it in the same way recently. Um and, you know, Pickford scares the life out of me. Those are the three <laughs> things that I would say, just because of kind of his way he shouts at himself and it feels like he's thinking it too much. He's thinking it about it way too much um, and needs to relax a bit. And that's when I see you know, Paul Robinson had the same issue. Joe Hart had the same issue. They were thinking about their goalkeeping way too much because they made a couple of mistakes they couldn't shake and move on from. So, yeah, but that's my 20%, <laughs> you mm. know. Um, and I'm looking forward to learning more about Antonio. Yeah, his Inter Milan side were very exciting, and I, I don't think 
because of course, like when he left into Milan, uh, and obviously you know Carlo gave us the boot. I was screaming out like it's got to be Conte, but it must be nice supporting a team that's in London and got all the the appeal of a London club. And I just want to congratulate you beforehand on your victory on the weekend because <laughs> we're not we're not doing it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see, let's see. It'll be interesting to see. What what happens because um, I I'm, I'm not very confident going into that game. I have some level of confidence that we'll be okay, but um, you know our defence has got a lot of work that needs doing, which is which is strange because we've got some really good defenders in it as well. But let's see. Yeah, so of ours and Kane's got a good track record. I think he'll continue that against Everton. Anyway. Leon, I just want to say, mate, uh, as I mentioned before, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, every time, I, like, I really enjoy the conversations that we have because they're not sort of question and answer; they're more conversational. Um, and I really do enjoy that, mate. And you're more than welcome to come onto the podcast in the future because uh, you've been a fantastic guest. So uh, thanks, mate. Stop, man. Cheers. Take care, mate. Take care.